Thank you all. You'll notice we have access to the cafeteria now. I have keys. We have keys. And uh, we're currently working on where the uh, uh, projected image will go, left, right, center. We're going to try for center. That way everything is centered. But until then, just be patient with us. We're trying different things out. And uh, today we're uh, continuing, if you're just joining us, a series called Acts. The world, we're going through the entire book. We've called it The World's Greatest Construction Project. And to begin today, uh, I wanted us to watch this video uh, about an unfinished church. Vince, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us about your new book that Crossway has just published, The Unfinished Church, God's Broken and Redeemed Work in Progress. Uh, before we get into the content of the book, tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are. Well, uh, Justin, I'm a pastor. Uh, I serve as a pastor at a church in Colorado Springs, and uh, I've been there for about eight years now, and uh, serve as the pastor of small groups and spiritual growth, so really helping people develop and grow in their faith. This adjective, uh, the unfinished church, I mean, there's all sorts of books, uh, the ingrown church, the healthy church, mm -hmm. the gospel-centered church, all these driven churches. Mm -hmm. uh, why did you choose unfinished as the, the main metaphor that you want to use for the church here? Well, it really stems from uh, a time where my wife and I lived on the island of Bermuda. And on one end of the island is an old Anglican uh, church structure that they started building and it was unfinished. Uh, a series of events happened. There was church infighting. Uh, there was a tropical storm, some financial challenges, and the church building itself was never finished. And it's become a Bermuda landmark. And I was really always, when we lived there, I was really drawn to the structure. It was very intriguing. Uh, it's a beautiful structure, but obviously it's, it's broken down. It's, uh, it's unfinished. Uh, and I really thought that was a great metaphor for the church that God is building today. Uh, we often hear a lot of things in our culture about how I love Jesus, but I really don't like his church very much. And so therefore, I'm going to remove myself from the context of a local body. And I really saw this as an opportunity to, to really do some teaching on the fact that we are a broken people. That's who makes up the local church. And so because of that, I uh, was able to link the metaphor of the, the unfinished church in Bermuda uh, with the reality of uh, God's work in progress uh, that the church that we're a part of. So what sets you said there at the end, God's work in progress. And so that's where um, we've decided each week to end with our work in progress. And... Um, we need to realize that we have unfinished business to attend to. We are, as the uh, book uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand says, we're people in need of change, helping people in need of change. From Bermuda to the back country, from basements to buildings to the church universal, church local, we have a work to do. And over the past couple of weeks, you've seen me call out works in progress. And you notice they're general because I, I don't like to get too specific in my applications because I believe the Holy Spirit, I believe Jesus, I believe God the Father, they work together as the Trinity, but they also work individually with every one of you. Um, and so it's better to give general application and let the Spirit apply it as He sees fit than me to try to hone in on 
uh, what exactly it is you need to do. And so the first week we had get caught up in the story. And it's just a call to read the Bible, a call to get caught up in the story of Scripture. And to do from that is get involved in Jesus' community, the local body of believers, because there is no universal church without the local church. Last week, it was understand the blueprint. In Acts 1, 1 through 14, we saw the blueprint of um, the local church. And the blueprint of a church differs from, say, the blueprint that a, at a construction worker might get, that a general contractor might get, because they're to stick to that no matter what. And they're to follow the exact blueprint. If there's change orders, they can change it. But they don't necessarily have the freedom, except if you're building your father's house and he may give you a room that you can put in uh, your own spin on things, so to speak. But for us as a local body of believers, God gives very general blueprints because he understands the people in Eagle and Gypsum and the Eagle Valley are different than, say, the people in Dallas. Uh, There's Bronco fans here. Very few cowboy fans, right? There's differences between us. And so God has seen fit to have us build according to our context. And so in, in, a, in a general contractor's world, there is specific standards and there are no unaccounted for deviations. Those aren't good. Uh, but in God's blueprint, there are general standards, but he allows us to build freedom through the gifts. And we'll see that in the book of Acts. And then also, is not only do we get involved in Jesus' community, but it's build his kingdom. We've chosen that song, build his kingdom here. as kind of the theme song for this particular series because we want to build God's kingdom here with our people according to our gifts, according to the scriptures. And so those were the past two works in progress. And it's based upon this Puritan theme that we have the acts of a sovereign God through the ministry of his only son, should be on the next slide, Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the mission of his chosen people. And so today you're going to see in this chapter a summary of chapter 1. We had Luke's introduction in verses 1 and 2. You saw that last week. He had Christ's commission to the apostles. You saw that in 3 through 8. You saw his ascension in 9 through 11. And then you saw the disciples' devotion. And today you're going to see the apostles' reconstitution. Because if we look... Uh, turn with me to Acts 1, verse 15. But if you look back up in 13 and you count those names there, you have Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. That's 11. Somebody is missing. And so there's something missing in 15 through 26. You can see the outline of 15 through 26 here. You're going to see the setting. Uh, You're going to see Peter's sermon. This is first of 11 sermons from Peter, should be on the next slide, and then you're going to see the selection of the new apostle, because Judas Iscariot is missing. And if you're paying attention to what Brian read uh, a few minutes ago, you know that Judas uh, left the disciples, he betrayed Jesus, and we'll look at his life today, and we'll look at the life of Matthias. Father, this is your word. It is absolutely true. It is without error, and we should read it. We should enjoy it. We should live by it, and we should change our life if need be. I pray today in the multitudes of things that you have for us in this text, that we would hone in on the big two, that we would um, understand our importance and insignificance, and that we would plan with a providential perspective. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Verse 15, in those days. It was in the days between Jesus' resurrection and uh, the coming and ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So between the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father and the coming of the Spirit of which the Father and the Son would send the Spirit, it was in those days that Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 and said, I'll start with the company of persons. Some say the 120, the number represents the need for an official governing group. Others say if you do the research in Hebrew literature, 120 is not really the number, it's 230. And so uh, often we like to take numbers in the Bible and see symbolism. Here I don't think there's much. It's just, I think it's Luke showing you we've gone from a group of 12 to 120. We're slowly growing. And Peter stood up among his brothers. Notice there too. Uh, brothers, from the beginning, you'll see this throughout all the New Testament, the language used of believers and people in the church is that of family. We are family. You've often heard me say that this is a church family. We have family meetings. We are brothers and sisters. Not physical, but we are spiritual brothers and sisters. And you, you can't miss that importance. If you just read it here in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and you kind of move on. No, there's, it's used over and over and over again in Acts, in the New Testament, in all the epistles. We are family. That I'm teaching my kids that they have two families. There is their physical family and there's their spiritual family. And both are important. Both are important. In those days between the ascension In the coming of the Spirit, Peter stood up among the brothers and he said this. And so here's Peter coming to speak the words of God. Uh, Peter was told, if you see, uh, I think I have it up there, Luke 22 uh, and 31 and 32. Peter was told, Simon, Simon. It's like Jesus using Peter's uh, given name. Like when my mother wanted, if I was in trouble... Uh, my mother wouldn't say, Judd, come here. She would say, Judson, Paul, Rumley, you get in this room right now. And, and we recognize, when, or my, it was Jared, Paul, when you heard your first name and middle name together with that stern voice, something's coming. And so back in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That's a... And by the way, according to Hebrews 5, you too uh, can rest assured that Jesus is praying for you. That your faith may not fail. He was going go on and to deny him, not betray him, but he would deny him three times. And when you have turned again, John 21, strengthen your brothers. And that starts right here in Acts 1.15, 1.16 to be exact. That G- Jesus, who called Peter to repentance and said, Uh, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And so here he goes, and he starts to feed the sheep. And notice what Peter says. So Luke records it in 15, the brothers. Peter says in his own sermon here, brothers, we are a family. John 1, 12 says, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, your right in life is to be called a child of God. Peter says, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And you're going to notice here um, that this isn't a one-for-one bullet point-like approach to the Bible, but Peter's going to take two psalms and form one main point. Interesting, he goes from the type in the Old Testament to the truth in the New. What was true of God and, 
and David and his enemies in the Old Testament Psalms works here. And you wonder, did Peter learn to view Christ from all the Old Testament, maybe from the two who are on the road to Emmaus? I don't know. It's worth asking him when we get there. And so the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share of the ministry. And so here is a clear indication from Peter, first sermon, post uh, Jesus' ascension, that he believed the Holy Spirit worked through the scriptures and this is a phenomenal verse for you to know, besides 2 Peter 1, uh, 20, 19-21, but you'll see that Peter is saying the Holy Spirit spoke through David. That is, the scriptures of old are God's work concerning Judas, who was a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This is the Judas who went and, and conferred with them for 30 pieces of silver I'll show you this man. He had to walk up and kiss him because they all looked similar. For he was numbered among us. He was numbered among us uh, at, at one time. And he was allotted his share of the ministry. I think this is a wonderful picture that Judas got to participate in a lot of things in the, his local church, so to speak. But he was never a believer. We'll see that in just a minute. And so this is my answer if somebody comes to me and says, Hebrews 6 said there are some who have fallen from grace and who have turned away. Uh, They had their share of the Holy Spirit. And I said, so did Judas. Judas had his share of the ministry. And look what happened to him, verse 18 and 19. Now this man acquired a field, more on that in a minute, and the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Luke does not hold back on the gory story here. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldamah, that is, the field of blood. And so we have to go back to the Gospels to see, kind of get a little more uh, information on this story being told here about Judas. And so I have, if you want to turn to Matthew 27, you can, but it's up on the screen for you. There, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. Judas had gone, he had brought the, the high priests and the officials and the guards to Jesus, and he betrayed him with a kiss, and then he saw that he was condemned, and so he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Sounds like repentance. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And so he hands them the 30 pieces of silver. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he didn't hand it to him. He threw it down and departed. He went and hanged himself. And so some people say, oh, Acts 1 is off for Matthew 27. We can never reconcile these things. Let's shut the Bible. Go watch the Broncos. No need for church. But a simple explanation will help us with that. Uh, Acts tells us he fell headlong and burst in the middle and his bowels gushed out. I mean, We don't need to go get rated R movies. You just need to read the Bible. And here it says he hanged himself. So perhaps if we're uh, rebuilding this story, so to speak, Judas throws the pieces. He goes out and he finds a tree and he goes and he hangs himself on the tree. And that tree just happens to be overlooking a valley, overlooking a little gully. And that tree... 
perhaps because of his weight, busts open, and he falls headlong, and his body, and I'll just say, without reading it again, his body splatters on the rocks. And so we don't have to doubt the Word of God. We just put them together, and God in His wisdom, who's given us the mind of Christ, we can take the two uh, pieces of literature, put them together, and come up with a coherent story. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it's blood money, meaning we don't want to be seen as the ones who are uh, taking this money back. This is blood money. He betrayed Jesus with this money. We don't want to do anything with this. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. So they took the money to the place where Ju- and bought the field where Judas had hanged himself. And thus it says he acquired the field. So in some sense, Judas acquired the field with the money that he had betrayed Jesus with. But it was the priest who went and did it, the actual uh, buying of the field. And so if I were to give my money that I work hard for every day, and my wife goes and buys something, we could say that Judd acquired whatever she bought, right? A nod of the heads would be good. Yes, that's the true, right? Now, it would be wrong of me to hang it over my wife's head saying, that is mine because you used my, that's wrong. That's neither here, that's not in the text. So we won't even go there. So the priest took the money that Judas had used, so it's Judas's money, acquired a field, And thus they call it the field of blood because they didn't want anything to do with Judas. Therefore, and as you see it in Matthew, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. So Luke, the good historian, is just using prior knowledge to write his work. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. And so you see this horrible end to this man's life. John MacArthur calls it the great example of wasted opportunity in history. Judas betrays Jesus. Judas um, takes the money back. He goes and hangs himself. He dies and he either falls headlong or some other scientific uh, account is that his body just swelled up and burst open. The priests didn't want to be associated with Judas. They didn't want to be associated with the money. So they take his money by that field. And so it's the act of Judas and the priests stay unstained by some people's sin. Not a bad reconciliation of those two accounts. But understand that Judas was not a believer. Jesus even said himself in John 6, I have the verses up there, but there are some of you who do not believe. And John, in my Bible, it's got parentheses because he breaks from his flow of thought to let us know, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, i.e. Judas. Later on in John 6, in verse 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In another part of this Gospels, he called him the son of perdition. Later on in this account, it says he went to the place, as the NIV says, he deserved or to his own place. And so Peter, recognizing now there's only 11 of us because Judas has gone to his own place, stands up among his brothers and reads from the Old Testament, verse 20 of Acts. For it is written in the book of Psalms, 
May his camp, that's Judas's camp, become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. If you look at the cross references in your Bible, you will see that Peter uses two psalms here. He uses Psalm 69 and he uses Psalm 109. Two entirely separate psalms. Catch this. This is why we can't do bullet point theology in the Old Testament. He uses two entirely different psalms to form one main point. A psalm where David and his, it was about David and his enemies. And he says, as God judged his enemies here, so God will judge the enemies of Jesus now and let another take his office. God's judgment is clear and warranted. May his camp become desolate and let there no one else dwell in it. You're going to see God's judgment throughout the whole book of Acts. You'll see it in, in, again in Acts 5 with believers, Ananias and Sapphira. That's one of those sermons where you begin the whole sermon with, this is going to be a tough sermon. Because Acts 5, 1 through 10 is just, uh, it's, it's brutal. And you have to begin with that. Otherwise, people who are coming and hoping they got just that day a word of encouragement, um, that's just not an encouraging section of Acts. And we can't just, well, I don't want to preach that one because it's not encouraging. We'll just skip right over. you know. And, and, you, and then you write it off with, well, what happened in 1 through 10 is some people didn't follow the rules and we move on. But you have to deal with that. You have to deal with God's judgment. You have to deal with Simon the magician who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. How much for that Holy Spirit guy? I mean, I need some power too. And Peter um, reads him his rights, so to speak. And then you see Herod in Acts 12, much like this language Luke uses here, that he was eaten with worms. It's almost as disgusting as his, what does it say here? His bowels gushed out. God's judgment is clear and it's worn and it's messy. But what has happened is Judas has gone to his own place. They need to have 12 apostles. Why? Because in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, of which Judas was there when he said that. And so he's gone. There will be more additions. You will have Paul and Barnabas, but there will be no more replacements. Paul, I believe, and personally, is, is raised up to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what it says in what he says of himself in um, Galatians 2. That's what Jesus says of him in Acts 9. We'll see that here in a few weeks. His ministry is tied to what the scripture... Anybody in here Jewish? Before we go, anybody in here Jewish? No. So Paul's ministry is to us, the barbarian. That's what they call us in scripture. More on that next week. That's you and me. And so... To the 12 tribes of Israel, they had 12 apostles. They needed to restore one. They give the, re, not the reasons, but the, the um, requirements. So one of the men who is accompanying us, Acts 1.21. So he's been with the disciples. During all the time that the Lord Jesus went out, in and out among us. And so this is the life of Christ. They further qualify it. Beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. And so they had to be around and have made aware and or witnessed the God's identification of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased until he was taken up. And like we learned last week, when they're gazing, these guys are like, you have a mission. 
And so somebody had to walk with them in between that period. Of these men, had to be a man, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so they mu- not only did he see Jesus die, but he was there and saw the resurrection and saw Jesus. And so in verse 23, they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Barsabbas, the son of the Sabbath, or the son of the old man. This is one, we know he's Jewish with that first name Joseph, tied to the Old Testament. He was either born on a Sunday, or he, his daddy was old. One of those two are your options. And who is also called Justice, which some believe is the Latin form of Joseph, and Matthias. And so they chose two. Now, now let me, I think the next verse is, is Proverbs 16, just the first part of it. The heart of a man plans his way. And so Peter says, from these two scriptures, we must choose a replacement. A twelfth man, so to speak. Right? A twelfth man. You need a twelfth man. You ever heard of the twelfth man? Right? We need a twelfth man, and we're going to plan our way. Uh, The most famous twelfth man is is Texas A&M. And according to Wikipedia, which is everything Wikipedia records is true. Just kidding. The 12th man or 12th player is a term for the fans in the stadium, a potentially helpful role in the game, right? Did you know long before American football, there was a term that had a different meaning in the game of cricket, referring to the first substitute player who fields when a member of the fielding side is injured. And so in some way, this is your first substitute. And so they... Hear Peter's sermon. He begins with the Old Testament, says this is what we ought to do. Here's the word of God. This is what we ought to do. And they are thinking here. So they put forward Joseph and Matthias. And here's the question. I always try to ask questions of the Bible. Some of them are good. Some of them are just random. Why just two? Right? See, we get, sometimes we get into organization of church and we, we buy into the way our pastor did it way back then or we did something that worked, that was practical and fruitful, and all of a sudden we have to do it. Why just two? Does that mean every time we go to present an elder we have to have two? Is, that what, is this a descriptive text or a prescriptive? Never should you guys put anybody up for elder. There's got to be two because in Acts 1 they had two. No! I don't know why there were just two. Maybe there were three. Maybe Mortimer had gone off to get something to eat, and by the time they're trying to choose him, he comes back and he goes, oh, man, I missed it. I could have been an apostle. Right? We don't know. See, a lot of the book of Acts is descriptive of what happened then, not prescriptive of what we need to do here. But notice what they do. They put two forward, and then they prayed. A man plans his way. And they prayed, look what they prayed, Lord, you, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. And if you go back to verse 2 of of Acts 1, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, quote, whom he had chosen. So they understood it is God who would do the choosing. Lord, you know the hearts of all men. You know whom you've chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship or this, as the NIV said, this apostolic ministry, this special ministry from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. 
And so Judas left that unique ministry to go to his own place. And so they, they choose to, they pray, and then in 26, they cast lots for them. They cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The heart of a man plans his way. Proverbs 16, nigh the end of it. But the Lord establishes his steps. That should be the next slide there. And there's another one. Proverbs 16, later on in that chapter 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 23. And so what did they do? They chose, they prayed, then they flipped a coin. Literally, what they did is they had marked stones, right? If you've ever seen the show Survivor, this is similar. They voted on this guy because the language here is loose. Are they just flipping coins? Are they voting? The language, if you look at it in Greek, when he was numbered among the 11 apostles, that's very much a political term. And so was he voted on? It's not clear. Loose language without indicating precise method, as one commentary said it. Uh, we, we all want these, these faithless, mindless methods, but God wants us to use our noggins. And so Luke's not going to come right out and say, this is exactly how they did it, because he would have known the rest of us from, all, uh, from that time until Jesus returns. We would have been arguing every week about, should we put two men up for elders? Are we going to vote? Are we going to choose? Are we going to flip a coin? And the language just doesn't give us much because God wants us to use our noggins. We've got the mind of Christ. And so you can flip a coin. Here would be my suggestion. Are you going to live with that as God's sovereign plan for your life? Right? He comes down, and there's Chris, and there's Jim, and Lord willing, October 5th. There's Brian, and we come to, are we going to flip a coin? We could, the Bible allows it, but then are we going to live with that as if it's God's sovereign plan? Because that's exactly what they did. Hey, let's cast the lots. What number did, what, what did you pull out? Ooh, I got a white stone. Ooh, I got a black stone. One for Matthias, one for the three named guy, right? <laughs> because he forgot it, right? And then one here. Oh, we got another one here. Man, Matthias, you're going to, oh, your justice is still in this one. Three to two, right? How many people chose, how many lots were the cast? It didn't say. Was it just the 12 or was it more of the 120? We don't know. And we don't need to know. Because God wants us to, to be free. I personally think this is a unique situation because if you were to go into any free online Bible study material and put lots in right after that, never again do you see casting of lots ever happen again in the New Testament. Ever I like to go with what's emphasized in Scripture, not what's just in there as description of what happened. And so it seems to me this is unique. This is descriptive of how they did it, not prescriptive of how we should do it. It seems to me as the Old Testament is coming to the end and the New Testament is coming in between the time, next week we'll see that then they get the Spirit and then they the Spirit will guide them. And all of this was done with the preaching of the Bible prayer of the people, and all of this is done before the Holy Spirit is sent. More on that 
next week. And so I just walked you through the text. Let me give you some truths drawn straight from these um, 13 verses, these 12 verses of Scripture. These aren't up there, so you'll just have to bear with me. Number one, the first truth is about God. He is sovereign. Uh, His plan is worked out through providence, that we have an absolute responsibility to plan. They, They planned, they chose, they prayed, they cast their lots, they used their method, but it was God who chose Matthias. Uh, Even from this chapter, verse 1, it was God who fixed the times. We could go to Isaiah 48, 8 through 11. You could see that there's not one thing in all of the world that God has not fixed from beginning to end. That doesn't mean we don't use our noggins. That doesn't mean we don't plan. But God has fixed the times. From 124, we see that God knows the hearts of man. We could go to Psalm 139, 1 through 4, and he keeps watch over your soul. He knows the words on your mouth before you... Speak it. He knew I was going to say speak there. You didn't know. See, you didn't know I was going to say see, but he knew I was going to say see. That, that's, I believe that to be true. He knows our hearts, but we have the responsibility in Proverbs 4.23 to guard our hearts, for out of it comes the wellsprings of life. And we see in verse 2 and in verse 24, he is the one that chooses people, yet it's the disciples had their part in it. Again, this is the book of transition. You'll see them do this in Acts 6 again. The apostles are going to stick to what they're called to do. That is similar today. The elders and deacons should stick what they're called to do, and then others should come alongside and serve. You'll see it in 2 Corinthians 2.6, the punishment from the majority. Seems like we have a, we have, God works His plan out through His people. God is sovereign. We must plan. That's your first truth. He is absolutely providential over everything that doesn't negate good planning. And good planning often requires steps, goals, things like that. So structure isn't uh, anti-biblical. Then you get the clearest affirmation of the Bible being the Word of God on Scripture. That Jesus had spoken Scripture to His disciples. Peter was speaking to the disciples of the Old Testament. And Luke here, writing to Theophilus, is using Scripture to prove Scripture. You see church growth, the, the unfinished church. You start with 12, and then it goes to 120, and you hear in 1 Corinthians there were 500, and it just keeps growing, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it continues to grow. I have no fear that King Jesus will rule the world. For 2,000 years, people have said, this word is not true, you guys are hypocritical, and the church will die out. So much so that we get wise guys who get bored in their quiet times Say, you know, if we don't change, the church will falter. Really, you, you read that? Because I read Matthew 16, and he says the gates of hell are not going to prevail over it. So we could be the biggest bunch of doofuses ever, and God's still going to do his work. But then there's something very serious. All those are very serious, but you get God, you get the scripture, you get his church. And then there's the issue of, of Judas, who took his life took his life. And just a couple weeks ago, what seemed like one of the happiest people in the world took his life. I grew up. I know Nanu Nanu. He took his life. And so we have to deal with that today because the world needs to hear a biblical perspective on suicide. 
And there are two articles I've got out on the front table for you because you, you may have known someone or you may have known someone in your circles, maybe not personally. Ashley and I have a friend at Denton Bible Church who took his life. You remember that? And you know what? He, you know what? He, this, this guy, I know he's a believer and I know he's with Jesus. And he took his life. We were going through a pretty troubling time at, at that church. And um, we were getting ready to go on vacation. You remember what he told me? He said, you take your bride and you take your Bible. You know, I, when I go on vacation, I think I'm going to read, you know, the, everything in the library. So I break in like a suitcase and like 20 books. I'm going to read these. I don't end up reading anything. I just play on the beach. But I have these ideas and I'm going to read. And this man, that, and there, there were principles that, that God used and still uses in my life from that vacation because I took my bride and I took my Bible. I took no other books. So every day I would just read. And there were pin- principles drawn from Scripture that I still use to this day. And that man God used in my life, that man took his life. And so on the first article I have for you out there is just four brief theses on suicide. It's by Kevin DeYoung and it's wonderful. It says the subject of suicide should be approached sensitively and compassionately. It is sensitive and we need to be compassionate. And suicide is complicated and happens for different reasons. But not only is it sensitive, there's just a lot going on. I could... If I had time, tell you more about this gentleman. But there's just a lot going on. But two things that the world needs to know. Uh, one, the, the conviction they need to know. And two, the hope. Suicide is a sin. And there are verses in the Bible that say we don't have the right to take our life. We don't have the right to take others' lives. We don't have the right to take our life. And the scriptures are in here for you to read. But here's the one the world needs is that suicide, if it's done by a believer, is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus died for that sin. So he didn't die on the cross and say, you know, I'm dying for all sins except for suicide. He didn't say that. And the other article is called Suicide, Mental Illness, Depression in the Church. And it's just a collection of uh, books and sermons and uh blogs out there, wonderful. Uh, one of the books out there that I've got on my in my digital library, Christians Get Depressed Too. If you ever struggle with that, I'd encourage you to read it. It's a very biblical approach to that. Um, Ed Welch, who we love in our home, Depression, The Way Up When You Were Down. It's a little booklet. John Piper, one of my favorite pastors, writes, When the darkness does not lift, doing what we can while we wait for God enjoy. And so those are out there for you who are interested. I, I remember um, doc, reading Dr. Piper's work on this, and he does a wonderful balanced view. of Because the question always gets asked, what about medicine? Where does medicine come in? He does a wonderful job of answering that, but he goes back to the scriptures. And so we have to handle that because the text talks about suicide. It talks about apostles. There, there are big A apostles. There are the 12 for you. Jewish apostles, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, and Matthias. Paul would become one. Barnabas one. There's discussion on others. I think those are the apostles to the Gentiles. 
and those are the apostles, and that is the foundation of the apostles, and there are no apostles. So if you're hearing out there in other churches, the apostle so-and-so and his wife, bishop so-and-so, that's just a wrong interpretation of the text. That doesn't exist because they did not see Jesus from the time of the baptism to his ascension. They didn't see witness, eyewitness of his resurrection, and they didn't write scripture. They're not apostles. Is there an apostolic gift today? I think so. Ephesians 5 tells us the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers. But I think the apostolic gift is little a. The apostolic gift is that man who wants to see the gospel go far and wide. And he's, he's, if he's in church, he's always looking right out here. That's why Paul the apostle was looking way out here. And he's like, Timothy, come on. There's some people here and they need you because I'm going that way. And that's what they do. They're big dreamers. They're big visionaries. That's what they do. They're always looking. You can see them when you talk to them. They're always, they're just looking away. And then you bring in the, the evangelists who share the gospel. And then you bring the pastor teachers in here. They come in and they look right here. They don't look over. Now I'm looking here at those two, but, but right here. And they look at you eye level. And they, they're looking for the guy that nods with them because they're like, he's paying attention. And I'm going to look at him again because he's tracking with me. But there are no more big A apostles. I'll just go on record. I believe it. I believe that's what the scriptures say. Is there an apostolic gift? Yes. And then the issue of planning and providence. We have a responsibility to plan. And God's sovereignty is he will work through our plans. And sometimes he works against our plans. But it's all in his sovereign plan. In the casting of the lots, I'm not going to go say, don't go flip a coin, but... If that's what, just live with it as that is God's answer for you. If you're going to play that fast and loose with can't, should we cast lots today? And then finally, leadership. And I think this is the one I want to speak to for just a few minutes. Uh, you have Joseph, Barsabbas, Justice. What do you think he thought when the, when the lots came out? He's like, ah. Oh. I mean, there were four of us, and two went away to do something, so I'm thinking to myself, it's just me and Matthias. And he didn't get it. But he's human. He's not just a name on a piece, a tri-name on a Judson Paul Rumley or Joseph Barsabbas Justice. He's human. What did he think? He's gonna, I want to see, because he's numbered among the, I want to go, hey, Joseph, how was that, bub? You Okay. Didn't get picked. It's a real thing. People don't get picked. So you gotta you gotta learn to shepherd and minister to that. How about Matthias? I was all ready to do a big old topical study on Matthias, so I go start doing some research. There's nothing on Matthias. He's never mentioned again in Scripture. Again, Wikipedia tells me everything I need to know. Uh, Matthias preached the gospel to the barbarians, that's you and me, and to meat eaters in the interior of Ethiopia. Now, meat eaters isn't the same use back then. It was That was the city of cannibals. Huh? That's what Matthias did. He went, into the, he went into the Congo and preached the gospel. He got venerated in the Eastern Orthodox Church on August 9th. Isn't that your dad's birthday? So th- next year we're going to get him a Matthias gift just because. But if you want to go with the Roman Catholic Church, anybody in here, February 24th, that's the, according to the Roman Catholic Church, that's St. Matthias Day. They call it the luckiest day of the year, right? I mean, he got to be an apostle. And that's, an, 
Literally, this says it here, and I just, it's therefore been seen as a good day on which to buy lottery tickets. You heard it first here. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. You guys are like, I can't believe you just said that. But you're paying attention. That is good. Don't do that. What, what's the point of that? Oh, I have a better illustration. I need my lovely assistant to come forward here. Matthias. Just hold that up there so it doesn't fall. Very important in the New Testament. He replaced Judas. He was very important, but he was also insignificant. And Howard Hendricks, I won't even mimic his voice. It's too good to to butcher. Told us when we were in seminary. Gentlemen, your impact in ministry is like this bowl of water. Put your hand in it. And then the hole it leaves. Is there a hole in there, sweet baby? No. Thank you. I saw one. There's no, there's no hole in there. That's the impact of my ministry. That's the impact of your ministry. That's the impact of Matthias's ministry. You mean to tell me that that the the church didn't hang on Billy Graham? No. It, it, his ministry's done, and there, there are more people following him. Praise the Lord for him. He's very important. But in the grand scheme of things, he's very insignificant. Important, but insignificant. It's a hole in the bucket of water. And Peter, we'll end with Peter. He took initiative. Some te- seem to think Peter got ahead of himself to see Paul would have would have uh, been the, the re- true replacement. But there's nothing in the text that tells us God was disappointed with Peter, Peter for standing up, preaching the Bible, and then applying it to life. Uh, he tied his general principles to the Scriptures. He didn't give up. He didn't give up on old school principles, right? We have friends in, in uh, the Buddhist temples who are giving up on Old Testament. They're not Old Testament, but their principles. They have thus cashed in on what it means to be Buddhist because they need help. I read it in the Vale Daily. Help Wanted, ancient Buddhist temple famed for its kung fu monks, sinks media directors to build brand. I'm dead serious. English and social media skills required. Not necessary to be a monk. Practice martial arts or eat vegetarian. So... Forget all that makes us different and special. We need to get this brand out there. We'll take anybody. That's not what Peter did. He said, this is who we need. And he gathered people around him who listened and lived out the vision of the preached Bible. These people heard the the sermon. They got together. They chose. They prayed. They casted lots. And they relied on God and were satisfied with his answer. So there's a lot. That was just... 12 verses of chapter 1. If I had to summarize it, should be our second to last slide here, our work in progress for this week. On the, on the biggest issue is we need to understand our importance and our insignificance. We're all Matthiases. We're, God has so chosen us through the casting of lots, so to speak, he needs every single one of us to flourish in our circle of influence and to build his kingdom. And we're insignificant. We're insignificant. In the grand scheme of things, 
I'm 40 wonderful. In 50 years from now, I may be 90 wonderful, but I may not be. And the work of God will still go on. Because this has never been, uh, it's been challenged, but it's never been overturned since it's been written. This, our final authority, will continue. And people who stick to this will continue to have important but insignificant ministries. And finally, prayerfully, it says they, they chose, they prayed, and they cast lots. They, they prayerfully and biblically planned their way as God directed their steps. That's how we build the kingdom. We prayerfully, biblically plan our way. God will direct our steps, understanding we are absolutely important to him. We are insignificant in the big picture. Father, thank you for such a humbling text. Thank you for such a rich text filled with many things. I pray if we know of anyone struggling, that we could use the articles on the front table to help them think through depression and suicide. Lord, I pray for those who are trying to make decisions that they would be prayerful, they would be planning, and they would understand that you move providentially as they pray and plan. Help us not be a people who look for magic signs or uh, awkward dates but that we are just mindful of your scriptures and trust that you will work through our decisions. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who are helping with communion would come forward.